Kroger's recently announced they are going to acquire Albertsons. Another case where consolidation in an industry is reducing consumer choice. It's hard to see any upside to this merger for anybody other than top executives at these two companies and their investors. Combined, Kroger and Albertson would control more than 20% of grocery sales in the United States. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm David Goldstein, Senior Fellow at Civic Ventures. I'm Paul Constant, and I'm a writer at Civic Ventures. We've worked together for how many years, Paul? Uh, Minus a little one-year gap in between. I think like 15, 15, almost 15, (laughs) the better part of 15 years anyway. Right. And for most of those years, we saw each other face-to-face just about every day. It's true. Up until, of course, the pandemic. And as you know, Paul, you haven't seen a lot of me because I've been one of the more careful people during the pandemic, uh, not wanting to catch COVID. Early in the pandemic, it was particularly a problem for me because I had trouble getting groceries delivered, as did a lot of other people. And when I did manage to start getting groceries delivered a couple months in, I settled on Safeway. And I did it because you know me, bleeding heart liberal that I am, I was very uncomfortable about the way these drivers and delivery people were being treated, about whether they had proper protection, about whether these essential workers were being paid like essential workers. And I learned that the Safeway drivers were unionized. Mm -hmm. They were Teamsters. And if there's one thing I know from following the labor union is that you don't mess with Teamsters. (laughs) And so Safeway became my supermarket of choice because I felt like I could order from them and union drivers with union protection who were demanding um, personal protection equipment. They had masks on, they had gloves, and I knew they were making a union wage with union benefits. And I felt like I wasn't morally compromised having my groceries delivered that way. No, that's right. And you actually tipped me off to this, you know, very early on in the pandemic, because I had done a couple of orders through Instacart and I felt terrible because, you know, these were drivers using their own cars, uh, going into grocery stores. I was, I was basically endangering someone else's life uh, for Uh my own so that they could be paid less than probably less than minimum wage. Uh, And so I was relieved to have this option where I could get, you know, people with proper equipment just for delivering groceries, you know, refrigerated trucks uh, and know that I was helping to pay someone a, a, a real wage that recognized the, the danger of what they were doing at that time. Right. And unfortunately, there's some news <laughs> recently <laughs> where this option is likely going to disappear because uh, Safeway, which is owned by Albertsons, Albertsons is essentially merging with 
Kroger, which owns the other two supermarket chains in the Seattle area. And, you know, QFC, uh, Kroger never offered that option. They didn't have unionized drivers. They used Instacart. So, yes, Kroger's recently announced they are going to acquire Albertsons for $24.6 billion. If the merger goes through, uh, they are going to become another mega grocery retailer uh, like Walmart, which will still be the industry leader. Uh, But combined, Kroger and Albertson would control more than 20% of grocery sales in the United States. And this will also affect different regions differently. Here in Seattle, as Goldie said, uh, they're pretty much the only two options outside of uh, Whole Foods or a few luxury grocers and uh, also in California and pockets of the East Coast. Right. And, you know, we think about this, we've been trained over the past 40, 50 years to think about mergers and consolidation purely from the consumer's point of view and purely from, will it raise or, or decrease prices for me? And and my God, they're promising big savings for uh, uh, consumers, right, Paul? Yeah, giant coupon, for sure. <laughs> right. Because, of course, that's what CEOs do. Their main focus in life is reducing costs for uh, their customers, not yeah. not increasing profits for shareholders. Yeah, they're so selfless. Uh, so to learn more about uh, why this merger would be bad for consumers and workers and just the, the grocery store environment in the United States in general, we uh, talked to Stacy Mitchell. She works for the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and uh, she recently released a statement that said Americans don't need another mega grocer. Uh, we're excited to talk to her about what else she has to say. I'm uh, Stacy Mitchell. I'm the co-executive director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can find all our great work on anti-monopoly on our website at ILSR.org. You know, Paul and I are here uh, in Seattle where uh, Kroger and Albertsons are the two largest supermarket chains, and uh, they are they announced a merger. Explain for our listeners uh, what this means and 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 why it might be a problem. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty shocking. I mean, I was I was pretty shocked when this merger was announced. And I think a lot of people were because, you know, Kroger is the second largest uh, supermarket uh, chain in the country after Walmart. Albertsons is the number four. We already have a grocery sector that is incredibly consolidated. There are just a handful of companies that that dominate grocery sales nationally. And, and these are two of them. And so the idea that they would merge together um, combined, they would have almost 20% of the market nationally and a much higher share in many local regions, as you noted in, in Washington state, certainly parts of California, you know, and other places around the country. I think for, um, you know, a lot of shoppers, you, you may not realize that Albertsons or Kroger runs your grocery store because they actually, each of these companies operates, I mean, I think each of them operates about two dozen different uh, chains, you know, under different names. And so, you know, Kroger is Fred Meyer, Harris Teeter, Ralph's, King Supers, and on and on. And, and Albertsons, likewise, you know, Safeway, Vons, Jewel Osco, Acme, uh, Shaw's, Tom Thumb, and so on. And so each of these companies is already the product of a lot of mergers. And now these two giants want to get together. Apart from 
uh, me and my uh, comparison shopping, uh, who are the losers and victims in this scenario? What's at stake for uh, not just consumers, but but for workers? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to see any upside to this merger for anybody other than, you know, the top executives at these two companies and their investors. I mean, that's really it. You know, consumers are going to see higher prices. We know that from past grocery store mergers um, and mergers in other sectors. We've already been experiencing you know, steep inflation in grocery prices over the last couple of years. And we know that grocery prices are, in fact, going up even faster than the wholesale prices that these chains are paying, meaning they're they're paying more for food upstream and then tacking on an even bigger increase. That's already happening. And these two companies put together would only cause prices to increase faster. So consumers are, are you know, we're, we're, we're losers as consumers. Um, we're also losers as people who need to make a living. I mean, retail workers, um, you know, we know that, that a lot of mergers lead to layoffs. Um, you know, that's certainly true in markets where you've got overlapping stores where these companies are probably going to close stores um, because they have this, you know, they already have, you know, different brands in the same region, those merge together, they're going to lay, we're going to likely see layoffs, you know, and that's one reason that that unions, uh, grocery store unions on the West Coast have been, you know, outspoken about how bad this deal is. In addition to the layoffs, workers are also likely to see you know, potential uh, stagnation in wages because, you know, there are fewer places to work. Those companies, you know, have a more market power to actually hold down, hold down wages. Some of the other folks that are going to lose, I mean, farmers and, uh, you know, small mm-hmm. companies that make food and people who work in food production. We know that when we see consolidation and retailing, that tends to you know, squeeze incomes for farmers and squeeze incomes for or, you know, people who work in slaughterhouses and various kinds of, of, of food processing. Um, you know, and lastly, independent grocers and the communities they serve are going to be really hit hard by this if it goes through because of the greater market power that Kroger Albertsons would have. One of the more frustrating pieces of the press release announcing this merger to me was uh, <laughs> that they they announced that they were going to provide they were going to provide the better part of a billion dollars in savings to uh, customers in terms of price decreases. And I've seen that repeated by the press as though it were it were gospel. And I was wondering if you have any uh, if you can maybe help tease out that number and, and explain um, why you say that you think that prices will go up. Well, this is like the standard playbook with a merger. You know, companies decide they want to merge and they put out a press release and they say, oh, we're going to create all these efficiencies, you know, and that's going to help us save money. And we're going to pass those savings on to consumers, right? That is the story that we've been told by merging companies over and over and over again. And yet we we have detailed analysis and, and work that has been done looking at big mergers after the fact. And what that analysis has found is that in the in the vast majority of cases, those mergers lead to price increases. I mean, it's you know the, the the deal here is yeah maybe they find some ways to cut costs, but that's mostly because they're cutting jobs, pushing down wages, you know, squeezing farmers. It's not actual efficiencies. It's more about using your muscle to squeeze other people who don't have as much market power. 
And then you take that money and you put it in your pocket. You don't pass it on to consumers. I mean, that's, you know, that's the name of the game. Um, so what their press release says and reality are two really different things. And it's unfortunate that, you know, I think uh, the way that, uh, you know, often media sort of works on autopilot in terms of quoting those things as though that's anything other than just a made up story. Um, it's, it's, it's too bad. Yeah, well, I, I understand why the media falls down on this, um, having been a part of it and having uh, covered the media for years. I'm curious about uh, the courts and about uh, antitrust regulators. Of course, when there's a merger like this, they promise it will be good for consumers uh, because that's basically how we have judged uh, mergers over the past 40 years. If, if you could speak a little bit about the federal guidelines on, on antitrust uh, policy and, uh, you know, uh, how that changed in the 1970s and what that has meant uh, for the massive concentration of market power we've seen over the past few decades. This merger comes at a, a really interesting moment uh, because there is a sea change underway in antitrust policy. And I think the high likelihood is that this merger is gonna be challenged, um, that the Federal Trade Commission, you know, uh, the, the antitrust agency that oversees, uh, reviews mergers in the supermarket sector, um, that they are very likely to challenge this merger. Uh, which is great news for all of the reasons we were just talking about. You know, for a long time, the last 40 years, you know, as you, as you mentioned, beginning in the 70s and 80s, there began to be, be this sort of um, ideology that took over um, our antitrust enforcement. You know, for decades before that, you know, uh, all through the 20th century, you know, we had very strong anti-monopoly laws and the government took a very, very skeptical view of mergers uh, and very often said no. And indeed, so much so that companies didn't propose them. You know, it, it's certainly not at this scale. I mean, just to give you a sense of, of, of what the environment was like prior uh, to the 1980s, in, in the mid-1960s, there was a significant uh, antitrust case that went all the way to the Supreme Court in which the antitrust agencies blocked a grocery merger that would have given one company a 7% market share in one metro area, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, and they won at the Supreme Court, you know, the agencies blocked that merger and they won at the Supreme Court level. Like the idea that one company would control 7% in the Los Angeles metro area was enough to be like, nope, that's too much. You know, and now we live in a world where Walmart has one out of every four dollars that people spend on groceries nationally and has more than 50 percent of the market in lots of metro areas. And, you know, Kroger is right there behind it. And then you throw in Albertsons. I mean, an incredible level of consolidation. And that is because of this huge shift that began to happen in the 80s where uh, essentially led by uh, folks like Robert Bork and other you know, legal and economics uh, scholars, uh, there became this idea that large corporations were inherently better, that they were more efficient, that they delivered more you know, benefits to society and lower prices and so on, and that generally we should embrace consolidation rather than try to uh, limit it. That was their thinking, and you know, one of the ways in which they codified that into policy is that in 1982? So Reagan gets in, you know, gets into the White House, and he appoints 
folks to the, the antitrust division uh, at the Department of Justice, and they rewrite the merger guidelines. Um, and the merger guidelines are like a policy statement that says, here are the conditions in which the agencies will generally challenge a merger. Here are the conditions in which we think a merger is illegal under existing law. And, you know, the, the sort of friends of Robert Bork, uh, you know, who were, who were put into office under Reagan, rewrote those guidelines in a way that they just don't, they have nothing to do with what the statute says as passed by Congress. I mean, they're just a totally radical departure from what the law passed by Congress actually says. And the merger guideline says, oh, you know, we really kind of like mergers, you know, essentially. I'm obviously mm -hmm. simplifying, but that's the general gist of it. And so ever since then, we have had merger after merger after merger approved and it has really contributed to the kind of consolidation we see now. And to be clear, this was not like an act of Congress. Uh, Congress didn't debate over this. It was rulemaking within the Reagan administration that entirely overturned the previous, you know, 75 year regime of antitrust regulation. That's absolutely right. I've referred to it as a coup because that's sort of like the closest <laughs> word I can come up with with what happened. I mean, it's really I was surprised. So, you know, that the antitrust agencies now are in the process of actually reviewing the merger guidelines and they're going to write new ones, which is one of the more exciting things that's happening right now. Um, and really, uh, I feel very optimistic and happy about. Um, and so we we submitted public comments. Uh, you, you can read them on our website if, you know, if you're interested in understanding more about the details of this. But um, so, you know, uh, we we went back and looked at you know, we went back and read the, the primary uh, statute that Congress passed that governs mergers. It was passed in 1950, and it's called the Anti-Merger Act. It's an act designed to stop mergers. You know, it says it right there in the <laughs> title. And it is very, I mean, you, you read that, and it's like, it's like you're reading a law from another planet. I mean, it's very strong about how mergers are a threat to the well-being of people, to the economy, to independent businesses, to workers, and to democracy. I mean, that is all embedded in the in the um, you know the co congressional debate of that period and in the actual text of the statute. It says that you should we should we should we should stop mergers that may may lead to um, too much concentration. You know, not or guaranteed to, but may. I mean, it's it's really quite striking. And then you you line that up against the merger guidelines that you know were adopted in 1982. They've been you know altered and refined in various ways since 1982. But the but the basic structure of what they did in 1982 has remained you know through both Republican and Democratic administrations. And you go read those guidelines against what the 1950 law says, and it they they have no uh, relationship to one another. So yeah, it was a coup. Yeah, and it's fascinating because the our current uh, merger guidelines are so antithetical to what they had historically been, and yet both eras there was there's been a bipartisan consensus. I mean, that 1950 Act I think was passed by a Republican House, or at least was crafted in a. I'm I'm trying to remember the exact the exact date of passage, um, but it was. There was broad support for the old antitrust regime in both parties. This was not a Democrat. In fact, antitrust was a big Republican um, uh, program 
uh, early in, in the previous century. And there's been, up until recently, bipartisan support for the current guidelines. Uh, Democratic administrations had an opportunity to change this, and uh, Clinton and Obama never lifted a finger. It's it's striking. I mean, you're right. The 1950 anti-merger law passed with really a high, you know, wide margins of support in, in both houses. And so there were lots of both Democrats and Republicans. There was, you know, very high level of support in both parties for for that law. And likewise, this period, this more recent period, has been embraced by, you know, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama as much as by the Republicans. And it really speaks, I think, to, you know, sort of the fact that we often talk about these differences in the parties, and obviously there are wide differences, and, and that's been true all along, but there are also these underlying um, agreements or these underlying ways of understanding political economy that have transcended the parties. And there was an understanding for many decades in the 20th century that concentrated power was a threat. You know, it was part of, you know, if you wanted to have a democracy, you not only had to make sure you checked, you know, the various branches of government from getting out of hand, but you also had to check concentrations of private power because that would threaten democracy too. And that was all lost, uh, you know, in the 70s and 80s. And Democrats played, you know, an equal hand really in bringing that about. Um, you know, the good news is that Biden has very much repudiated um, that legacy. He gave an incredible speech in 2021 in which he called out that whole line of thinking, the so-called consumer welfare standard. And he said, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, you know, th this has been a 40 year experiment and it has failed completely. Back to the Kroger-Albertson specifically, uh, I know the contours of every merger are different, but uh, in this case, uh, state attorneys general are sort of uh, leading a charge uh, against this particular merger. Um, our our state AG, uh, Bob Ferguson, is, is sort of leading the AGs uh, with a temporary restraining order. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and and uh, whether you think it's a, a useful charge against this particular merger. Yeah, I mean, one of the really weird and disturbing aspects of this merger is, you know, Albertsons, you know, its primary owners are uh, a set of private equity firms. And those folks decided in, in conjunction with this proposed merger that they would pay themselves, they would pay shareholders of Albertsons a $4 billion dividend um, that was supposed to happen, you know, uh, first week of November. And if you look at Albertson's financials, that's essentially all the cash that the company has on hand and then some. So what seemed to be going on is that the owners of Albertson's were like, hey, let's loot the company of all its cash and we'll put this proposed merger on the table and Albertson's will be so weakened that it will be very hard for antitrust regulators to say no to this merger because it's unclear that Albertsons could stand on its own two feet after we've taken all the cash out of the company. I mean, really kind of shocking, but that's what, you know, it, 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 this seems to be really about. And, you know, the AG of Washington State, along with the Washington DC attorney general and supported by a few other state AGs have 
gone to court in in separate actions to say you know, this payout cannot happen that this is really a violation of antitrust law because it seems to be a step towards um uh, undermining competition by effectively making uh, creating a situation in which this merger has to go through and that's playing out in the courts right now it, it's it seems like the washington state uh, AG case there is, seen, is being brought under state law has succeeded in getting an injunction, um, but there's going to be more kind of wrangling around uh, what happens with that uh, proposed $4 billion payout to investors. Yeah, you, you said it right the, the first time. You said it was uh, a payout to uh, the private equity firm, and then you corrected yourself and said shareholders. They are the shareholders <laughs> for the most part. They, exactly. they announce it as as a dividend to shareholders, but really it's a dividend to themselves. That's exactly right. And, you know, there are a few other shareholders. And so to be strictly accurate, I use the word shareholders, but basically they are paying themselves. And and looting is also, I think, the appropriate word yeah. that we need to use here. I mean, I would agree. I, and I'm glad you said that because I just like, I feel like a lot of times with, with corporate behavior, we kind of like round out our language you know like we don't we don't actually use the right words it's like no this is bullying this is stealing this is looting like let's you know like let's use the right words well we don't want to offend these corporations because as Mitt Romney (laughs) told us they are people right right exactly so we've talked about uh, federal and state actions, but is there anything that people listening right now can do to help stop mergers like this one yeah, I think one of the things that I would really encourage people to do is to keep an eye out for the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice, um, the other, you know, through the antitrust division at the Department of Justice, are going to be releasing, I think fairly soon here, sometime in the next few months at least, a a draft of their new proposed merger guidelines. And I know that this seems very um technical. It seems like, oh, this is kind of in the weeds and it's not that big of a deal. It, it really is pretty momentous because this policy statement will change not only how the agencies look at mergers, but it will also influence the courts um, and it will help judges develop a better understanding of the implications of mergers and how merger law, you know, as written by Congress, ought to be interpreted. So it's a it's a much bigger deal than it sounds like when I say merger guidelines. So I really, you know, they're going to be looking for public comment. And I think the kinds of comments, you know, it's you don't have to be into the weeds of what these policies are. I think the kinds of comments that can be helpful is just hearing from people about general concerns about consolidation. If there are particular kinds of mergers or consolidation that you've experienced or noticed an impact from, you know, certainly can reference those, but it can also just be like a general statement of support for uh, taking a stronger stance against this kind of consolidation. And I, I mentioned that is, you know, because I certainly, you know, these big companies, they're going to be trying to use uh, congressional oversight and, and other kinds of, of ways of attacking what the antitrust agencies are doing. And so, People can sort of do their part to really stand up for that change and, and make clear that this is what Americans want to see happen. One of the things that really didn't come up when we were talking about the harms of, of this merger is how much power this would give Kroger and Albertsons over suppliers. 
these companies already have a lot of leverage over suppliers. I mean, if you're Kroger, you are a major buyer of groceries. And so when you say to a supplier, give me a preferential deal and raise prices to my smaller competitors, which we know that Kroger has done and Walmart has done, suppliers are really, you know, they kind of, these are their biggest customers. They feel like they have to say yes. And so we've seen this waterbed effect where the big chains use their power to squeeze the suppliers and the suppliers comply. They say, okay, we'll give you a discount. We'll give you access to special supplies. We'll give you all of this preferential treatment. And meanwhile, we need to make up our margins. So we're going to raise prices to independent grocers. And that's part of what's really undermined independent grocery stores. Local grocers are, are really important you know, parts of their community. And you know, we should we should we should have an economy in which independent businesses can can compete. This is especially important because independent grocers disproportionately um, serve right. um, communities of color and rural areas and and black and Latino neighborhoods are disproportionately served by independent grocers. And so to the extent that this deal allows these big supermarket chains to flex a lot of power over the supply chain and to drive more independent grocers out of business, um, you know, there are going to be a lot of communities that are hurt by that. And it's going to be particularly communities that have already been uh, marginalized by um, structural racism, globalization, corporate consolidation, like all the things that um, you know have been creating these incredible disparities in our economy. Great. I'm I'm glad you raised that because it gets to a heart of a major misconception about the 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 efficiency argument that these companies make, the economies of scale, how they're going to save all this money and pass it on to consumers. A lot of the economy scale comes from that concentration of power. And when they squeeze a supplier, it's like squeezing a water balloon. It's going to, you know, you, they may get lower prices, but the costs remain the same. It's not like suddenly it's cheaper to grow apples uh, because uh, Kroger and Albertsons have merged. And so that needs to be made up someplace else. So really, when a Walmart or a merged uh, Albertsons Kroger uh, squeezes prices from suppliers, uh, they're raising prices for other people. It's great for those uh, the private equity folks that uh, own Albertsons, but not so great for almost everybody else in the economy. That's absolutely right. And you know it's a way in which Walmart and Kroger and Albertsons can can knock their smaller competitors out of the market, uh, not by having to outcompete them. Like they don't have to be better grocers. They can just say, hey, right. we're huge. We've got all this money and we're going to squeeze you. And you can't say no to us because we are such a big part of your business. Like if if Walmart or Kroger stopped buying from these major grocery brands, those companies would collapse. Like they can't say no to what, what, they, what the chains want. And this has nothing to do with efficiency. Um, this is purely about power and it has nothing to do with out competing it's purely about power and you know it brings us right back to the need to resurrect our antitrust laws because it is illegal for Walmart and Kroger and other big retailers to squeeze suppliers in order to gain a, an anti-competitive you know advantage in the marketplace that's outlawed under a 1936 law that the antitrust agencies you know, unilaterally without consulting Congress decided in the 1970s to just stop enforcing. They just said, we're not going to enforce that law anymore. Um, it's called the Robinson-Patman Act. Um, and mm -hmm. we've been calling for, you know, bringing it back. And indeed, 
you know, there are growing uh, number of voices in Congress and also at the Federal Trade Commission who are saying, you know what, we need to dust off this law because it is a major reason that Walmart, Amazon, these giant retailers dominate our economy and that so many of our communities are now devoid of basic goods and services of local businesses that meet local needs um, is because we haven't been enforcing that law. Yeah, uh, Matt Stoller pretty much wrote a whole book about that law. Uh, um, and, and if you're listening and you're interested, you can you can find an interview with Matt in our archives. Um, Paul, should I give you the honor of asking the final question? Well, yeah, I mean, we ask all of our guests, as you know, uh, because you were on our show last year, um, we ask all our guests why you do this work. Um, I'm curious if, uh, you know, if you feel differently about how why you do this work and the kind of work you've achieved in the last year. Yeah, I don't I don't actually remember what I said a year ago. So I should um, I should go back and, and look and it'd be funny to see if my answer is different. But I actually think that this is a really exciting time to be uh, doing this work because we are, I, I feel like we are very much on a cusp of a major shift in how we think about and govern the economy, how we think about concentrated power. And so, you know, a lot of the research and ideas, you know, and issues that I've been working on for more than 20 years now are actually at, at the fore and on the, on the cusp of real change. Um, and so, it, you know, it's, it's been pretty great to see. And, you know, my entry point into doing this work uh, more than 20 years ago was, you know, studying what was happening to communities, you know, when Walmart and other big retailers came in and ran the local businesses out of business, like what were the consequences of that? And I remember at that time sort of stumbling across the Robinson-Pavin Act and thinking, wow, we have a law that actually addresses this and somehow it has gone dormant. And so that's been part of you know, sort of what I've been thinking about and working on for a lot of years. And so to be at a place where there is a real live discussion about bringing that law back and other antitrust laws back is pretty exciting. Thank you. That that was wonderful. Yeah, I, we really appreciate you taking the time uh, to to talk about this. And, uh, and I really appreciate all the work you're doing. So thank you. All right. Thanks so much. This was a great conversation. I appreciate you having me on the show. So Goldie, what do you think about that conversation? The thing that jumped out at me, and I and I think this is really important for people to wrap their minds around, was the conversation about uh, the federal anti-merger guidelines and and the word that Stacy used to describe what happened in 1982 in the Reagan administration. She called it a coup. Yeah, and people need to understand it was a coup. <laughs> we are living in Reagan's world right now. He's like the, the Pinochet of American politics, <laughs> where the things that were set out in the Reagan administration ha have basically constrained us for the past 40 years. And it's not just anti-merger guidelines. We've talked about it a lot on this podcast. We talk about it a lot in our office. We've written about it a lot. Stock buybacks. Stock buybacks were illegal. They had always been illegal for decades, except under very unique circumstances where you had to go to the SEC and get permission to do stock buybacks. And the reason why they were illegal was because it's stock price manipulation. I mean, it, that's basically what it is. It is you're manipulating the price of your own stock. And it was illegal 
until 1982. Remember that year? Oh my God. 1982, when there was a rule change within the SEC from Reagan appointees that said, you know what? It's not illegal anymore. Go ahead. Do all the stock buybacks you want. And so we get a trillion dollars a year of stock buybacks, which is just sucking money out of the economy, money that's no longer going to reinvesting in expanding companies and building factories and creating jobs. Instead, go straight into shareholders' pockets and CEO salaries. It's one of the reasons why CEO pay exploded over the past 40 years. And you see that throughout the regulatory regime, over and over and over again, Decisions that were made, ideological decisions that were made in the Reagan administration have carried on through this day. These aren't things that Congress voted on. It's not something that the American public voted on. It's something that highly partisan ideologues in the Reagan administration either did or set into motion. The reason why that jumped out at me, Paul, is because there's a there's a silver lining to this story when it comes to antitrust and stock buybacks and overtime pay uh, and a host of other uh, regulatory and rulemaking issues. And that is if Reagan could do it, so so can Biden. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think that's one of the things that, you know, when Stacy talked about being excited uh, by, by uh, what's changing right now and the way we think and talk and uh, regulate about antitrust is that we have a president who finally seems willing uh, to go back and uh, change these rules. So, yeah. And I think that that one of the things that's so interesting about this Kroger Albertson's uh, potential merger is that it combines a lot of our sweet spots, right? You've got workers' rights, you've got buybacks. And and in this case in particular, you have a buyback being used to weaken one of the companies uh -huh. enough that it makes the merger a requirement, right? Right. Um, it's a poison uh, pill, obviously. It's a poison pill or it's 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 uh, I, I almost think of it as the equivalent of somebody trying to, like, burn down their store and get the uh, insurance money for it. Uh, yeah, uh, you know what? It's more like the scene in Blazing Saddles where the sheriff is holding the gun to his own head. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, so, you know, uh, we are lucky that, uh, you know, here in Washington state, our attorney general, uh, Bob Ferguson, is taking action against against this uh, this merger. And he filed a restraining order to block Albertsons from paying shareholders $4 billion in, in buybacks, uh, which would then trigger this merger. A judge granted the order, but it's only temporary, uh, you know, and there's a long way to go before this mm -hmm. buyback does or does not happen. And this merger does or does not happen. And there are going to be a lot of fronts in this battle. As we talked about with Stacey, this used to be a bipartisan issue. This The, the anti-merger uh, act was bipartisan. It had broad support from both parties and had long been supported. And that's because both parties understood that this type of market concentration, this type of market power is bad for democracy. It, it doesn't just create economic power, it creates political power. And it undermines democracy. And that's why both parties opposed this type of uh, economic uh, power, this concentration of power. But you, what's happened since then is that 
one of the parties no longer supports democracy. I'm not going to be nuanced about it. it <laughs> there are two parties in the United States, the Democratic Party and the anti-democratic party. The Republicans yeah. don't believe in democracy because they their base wants minority rule. And so, of course, they support uh, outsized market power because that money gets spent helping elect Republicans. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you could tie all this together to the end of democracy, Goldie, as, as you <laughs> always do, uh, that we've let the tape run long enough for you to get there. But um, I do want to point out that among the American people, this is still a, a very bipartisan issue, uh, that the American public uh, is against is is against mergers in general against i bet they're against this merger in particular i don't know if there's been any polling on it but i i would bet a significant amount of money that the american people think this is a bad idea so it's yeah. just a matter of the representatives uh uh obeying the will of the people and reflecting the will of their constituents which is admittedly an issue in the year of our lord 2022 <laughs> right also uh, there's a lot of great stuff from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance that we're going to link to in the show notes. You can go there, uh, read it all, participate. You can sign up for their newsletter, which will also send you to uh, to places to comment and things like that Stacy was talking about. Public comment is important in certain cases uh, more than others. And this is one of those cases where it's going to be really important to build a groundswell of support against mergers, uh, against monopolies and this sort of thing. Uh, they will be paying close attention to what people have to say and how many people have to say it. So I would definitely uh, advise you to uh, follow my lead and subscribe to their newsletter so that you'll know when it's time to take action and how the best way for you to take action will be. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.